Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I want to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. And I also want to thank you for partnering with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. There's always something new and exciting happening here at Ren, so please follow us on social media. You can find us by searching Renaissance Decatur. And you can also connect with us by visiting our website, rendecatur.org. Enjoy the podcast, and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here, and we're so glad that you're here. Every week, there are new people who come into the church and visit Renaissance. Every Sunday, we have visitors here for the first time, and we love that. And if that's you tonight, welcome to you. Thank you so much for coming here to Renaissance. And what you may not know is that every week, something that we do is open up the Bible and study it together. And tonight, we're going to continue a Bible study in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look underneath the seat around you, and there's a hardback Bible that you can turn to page 954 in. We'll also put the words up on the screen for you, but I want to give us a little bit of background before we go into 1 Corinthians 5. What we've learned is that this book is actually a letter written by a man named Paul who started a church in a city called Corinth, and he lived there for about two years. And after two years, he left. And after some time, maybe a year and a half goes by, he gets wind that some things are happening in the church that are not okay. The people who live there are, are not necessarily reflecting the fact that they are followers of Jesus. Their lives don't match up with what they say they really are. And he writes this letter to help them adjust their thinking and change their ways so that they can turn back to truly following Jesus uh, again. And we've been teasing for the past several weeks that we've been going through this, some of the issues that would come up. And we've already encountered some of them, one of them being factions that happened within the, the church. There are moments where there are e e extreme selfish decisions taking place within the church and people are being harmed. And we also even mentioned that at one point we're going to learn about a man who's been having an affair with his stepmom. Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> Don't want to judge, you know. But that is, in fact, the passage we're talking about tonight, where, where the Apostle Paul brings this issue up, where this man is sleeping with his stepmom, and he says, we've got to figure something else something out about this. Uh, listen, maybe, um, maybe you don't do that anymore, bro. <laughs> maybe, maybe you stop doing that. And, and so he, he writes this letter to help them understand and see that, that there is a better way to live than the way that they're currently living. Now, anytime we study the Bible, it's really important, and this is something that we put on blast here, it's really important that we always study it in its context. Context is crucial to understanding the Bible. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we, we look at who wrote the passage originally, who did the person who was writing it write it to originally? What was the, the historic setting that was taking place? And how does this passage fit in with the rest of the Bible? It's important for us to, to understand and know context to truly know what's really going on. If we take scripture out of context, it's possible to read something for just what it is without understanding the context and create doctrines and teachings and beliefs and ideas out of that that are false. It's because context is crucial that, that we must understand that when we go to study the Bible. Now, I wanna give you an example of what 
having good context looks like. This week I opened up my email inbox and I had an email with a subject heading that said, everything you need to know about your whole life. And I said, this is amazing (laughs) and presumptuous, but I'm gonna open it up instead. And I'm expecting that when I open up this email, I'll get information about what do I need to do for my whole life? What are the decisions, the choices that I need to make? How can I set myself up for my future? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would just send us an email that said, here's everything you need to know about your whole life. Wouldn't that be amazing? I was hoping that's what this was actually. But what I failed to do was read into the context and see who this email was from. Because while I'd hoped it was from God, when I opened it up, I realized everything you need to know about your whole life was in fact from my insurance agent talking about whole life insurance. And I promptly deleted the email out of disappointment. It's important that we understand the context of what's going on because we can truly miss the actual message that the author was trying to get across. And a couple of contextual issues that we need to understand about 1 Corinthians 5 are this. Number one, Corinth was a city known for its rampant sexual immorality. Other other cities in Greece would look at people who, who lived in Corinth with disdain. People who lived sexually immoral lives in other places of other parts of Greece were known as Corinthians, whether they were actually from Corinth or not. The the city itself became a byword for sexual immorality. It's important that we understand that about this city, about the context of the place in these Christians lived in. It's also important for us to understand that, that Paul lived in this city for two years. He lived with the people in this church for a couple years. He knows them. He probably knows the man that he's talking about in this passage. And not only does he know them, but he loves them. In chapter four, he tells them that that he's treated them or, or felt towards them like a father would towards his children. And like any good father, when, when their children are, are going astray and doing something wrong, going off the path, the father will come along and discipline them and help them to see there is a better way. You need to change your thinking. You need to adjust your life. You need to do something different because you're headed down a path of destruction. So Paul takes that role here. And I mention those things because there's something in this passage that's going to be a little bit abrasive to some of us. It's going to, it's going to rub some of us the wrong way. And we have to understand these two things, that Corinth was known for all of its sexual immorality and that Paul knew and loved the people who lived there. And so all of the decisions he made for the church were for the church's good. It's important for us to know those things. And so we're gonna get into the passage, but before we do that, I'd like for us to pray together. So would you pray with me? Lord, we are so, so thankful for the Bible. We're so thankful that we have the gift of this book to teach us about who you are, to, to show us about your love for us, to, to lead us to your son, Jesus. I pray that as we study tonight, you would help us to see more of who he is. And when we do that, that you'd help us to love him. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, chapter 5, Paul says this. It's actually reported. Listen, guys, I've heard that there is sexual immorality among you. And it's a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. He says, people who live in Corinth, who are outside of the church, pass by, and they see what's going on, and they say, wow, these Christians have gone wild. 
There's crazy things happening in this church. People outside the church are judging the Christians in the church for their immoral lifestyles. He says, you've got to figure this out. Here's what's happened. A man has taken his father's wife as his lover, and this is not okay. Now, before we go any further, I want to take a few moments and talk a little bit about sexual immorality and, and, and address it from how the Bible would view it. Remember, when we read anything in the scriptures, we have to take it within the context of the entirety of the Bible. And so it would be easy for us to read this passage and get a prescription for how to, how to treat issues of sexual immorality. But when we look at the whole of scriptures, we learn a few different things. And it's important for us to know them because there's a lot of shame surrounding this subject for many people. There's a, a lot of disgrace surrounding this subject for many people. And so it's important that we know this. Number one, we're all broken, every one of us. Every one of us were, were born with this thing within us called sin that, that causes us to disobey God. It causes us to run away from his commandments. It causes us to turn away from him. And sometimes that sin that's within us causes us to do sexually broken things. Sometimes it, it causes us to think sexually broken thoughts. And whether we've acted out on those thoughts or not, the propensity is within every one of us to act out on them because of the sin that dwells within us. So the first thing we need to know about sexual immorality is that we are all broken because of sin. The second thing we need to know is this, that some of us have gone too far. Some of us have crossed the line like this man did. Some of us have made choices, sexual choices that we regret, that maybe we feel lots of shame over, that maybe we wish we hadn't done, and it's put us in a place where we wonder what other people think of us, and, and some of us have secrets that no one else knows about, and if, if anyone were to, to know those things, they would crush us. We're all broken. Some of us have gone too far, but none of us have gone so far that Jesus cannot repair and restore us. There's nothing that any of us have done. None of us are too broken beyond repair. Jesus can put us back together. When I was younger, I decided to make my mom a gift for Easter. And it was about this time of year. And, and I, I went to a friend's house who made these stained glass lamp boxes. If you've ever seen one of these things, it's a small box that's made out of glass that you take pieces of broken glass and glue to and paint those pieces of broken glass. You put a light bulb inside. It sounds like a kid's craft. And I was like 20 years old when I did it, but it was for my mommy. So that's okay. And and I'm making this gift for my mommy. And what I realized while I'm making it is that this, this really cool, beautiful piece of art would not, would not even be a thing if it weren't for all of this broken glass that sat in a trash can next to me. In order to make these stained glass pieces of art, you have to have pieces of broken glass. You have to have shards of, of glass that appear to be useless and just tossed aside and good for nothing. But the, the, the skilled stained glass artist can take those pieces of glass and turn them into something beautiful. Some of us feel like our lives have been so shattered and broken and that's all that's left are just 
pieces that no one wants and that nothing can do with, but Jesus loves to take our broken pieces and put them together and make something beautiful out of us. That's why he came, so he could restore us and return us to himself. And so though all of us are broken and some of us have gone too far, none of us have gone so far that Jesus can't make something beautiful out of our lives if we'll give them to him. Paul goes on to say this in verse two, he says, and you guys are arrogant about this man's sin. He's performing sexual immorality and he's proud of it. And guess what? You guys have a big head about it as well. You're congratulating him. In verse six, it says you're boasting about this and your boasting is not good. It's like every time he comes through the door, they celebrate him. It's as though every time we'll call him Teddy and Mildred, every time Teddy and Mildred come into church, the guys run up and give Teddy a good game. Wow, man, way to go on snagging Mildred there. And Paul says, this is ridiculous. Do you you not see what is happening? You're celebrating this man's sin, but instead of celebrating it, what you should be doing is mourning. Verse two, he says, ought you not rather to mourn? The word he uses there that is translated mourn is the same word that's used in ancient Greek to describe how people feel at a funeral. He says, you should feel like you're losing a brother over this. You should feel like he's gone, but instead of mourning him, you're popping the champagne cork and releasing balloons every time he comes through the door. This should not be so. And he goes on to say this, let him who's done this be removed from among you. You might say it like this, kick him out of the church. And this is the thing that I mentioned earlier that's a little abrasive and a little little difficult for us to handle. Why, why would Paul prescribe this as the answer? Don't we want church to be a place where people can feel welcome, where people can feel accepted for who they are? That's what we want here at Renaissance, that, that there's no expectation on anyone to be anything other than who they are right now. And here's Paul saying, you should get rid of this guy. And here's why I think he's doing that. In verse 13, he says this, purge the evil person from among you. Those of you who are using the ESV translation or if you're using the black Bible from underneath the seat, you'll find that that sentence has quotation marks around it. And the reason it has that is because it's actually a quote from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 13, where where Moses describes that at some point in the nation's history, false prophets, false teachers, people who claim to have a message from God, but who are truly working on their own, people will come to God's people and they'll tell them things that are not true. And they'll attempt to lead many of them astray. And they will do that very thing. And because of this, because they'll be leading God's people astray, Moses says to them, get rid of him, purge him from your midst. Kick him out of your community. You shouldn't have anything to do with them because they're infecting what's going on. Pluck that thing out from your midst. When I was a little kid, I thought my grandpa was the smartest person in the world. There wasn't a thing he could do that I thought was wrong. And every evening in the summertime, he would sit out on his lawn and he would drink a cup of coffee. And one night I was sitting out there with him on his lawn and he's drinking a cup of coffee and I saw a fly land in his cup of coffee. And I said, Grandpa, there's a fly in your coffee. And he said, oh no. And he plucked the fly out of the coffee and took a big swig of the coffee. And suddenly Grandpa's not as smart as I thought he was. I said, Grandpa, why would you do that? That fly, he was in your coffee. And Grandpa said, he didn't drink much of it. 
And in my mind at that moment, you dump the coffee out and you go get some more because the fly that's gotten in there, he's, he's ruined the coffee because he's dirty. It's kind of like this. Sometimes we've, when you've gotten a splinter in your hand, if you just leave it there, after a couple weeks, what happens? It gets infected and it, it fills with pus and your hand gets swollen and it becomes nasty and, and you don't know what to do. You can't, you can't close it all the way. You can't pick things up like you used to be able to and it, and it hurts really bad because a foreign object is underneath your skin and has become infected. And what do you have to do? You have to remove the splinter. You have to take it out. And sometimes taking a splinter out is really painful. For them to purge this person from their midst would be really painful. It would be a really difficult thing for them to one, have the conversation, and two, they're probably friends with this guy. And sometimes when we remove a splinter, we have to have somebody else come along and help us because we're too, too scared to actually cut into our own skin and, and pull the foreign object out. And that's what Paul is attempting to do here. He's, he's attempting to help them remove this issue that's, that's causing problems, that's actually influencing and affecting everyone else around them. And when I first read this passage, I thought to myself, how did they get to this place? How did they let themselves get here? What were the choices that they'd made that allowed them to begin celebrating this guy? How did, how did Teddy find himself in these shoes? And it's pretty clear that he'd surrounded himself with people who wanted to support him in his bad choices. They were celebrating his sin. They, they were not coming along like a good friend and pointing out the issues that he had to help him grow, to help him mature. They wanted to support him in his disobedience and rebellion against God. It is crucial for those of us who follow Jesus to surround ourselves with people who are willing and unafraid to speak the truth to us when we need it. I have a friend who, who comes here who usually sits in the nine o'clock gathering. And every time I preach, almost every time, I get an email from him afterwards. And, and every once in a while, it says something like this. That was a really great point you made at this spot, Joe. And, and he'll go on to shower some praise upon me, which I love, by the way. And most of the time, what I get from him, though, are corrections. Do you, I, I really think that thing you said here was incorrect, and here's why. And he gives me a list of scriptures that contradict everything I just said. And he gives me a list of the, the Greek and the Hebrew words that prove why he's actually right and, and I'm wrong. And it would, it would be really easy for me to disregard that, to drag that email into my trash can. But I'm so appreciative of him that he's unafraid to say, would you consider that you, you might not be right on this one, Joe? I'm so thankful that God has put him in my life to point out things like that. Now, I'm the last guy in the room who wants to be told he's wrong. And so unless we're friends, don't tell me I'm wrong. But if we build trust with each other, if, if we've come to a place where we are in relationship and you know that, that I love you and that you love me and we have a place in one another's lives where we can speak candidly with each other and say things like, maybe you should reconsider what you're doing. Maybe, maybe you should think about changing the path that you're on. That's what healthy Christian community looks like. 
It's really easy for us to pat each other on the back in our sin and say, it's gonna be okay, just keep going without challenging one another. It's crucial. Paul says it's so crucial that we challenge each other that if we're not willing to do it, the only answer is to kick each other out of each other's lives. That's how important it is to have honest, faithful community around us. Paul says this in verse three, even though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, he says, the next time you guys get together and Teddy is there, you're gonna make a decision. And I want you to imagine, I want you to pretend that I'm in the room. And I want you to make this decision based on that idea that if Paul were standing in the room, what would we do right now? And he says this, oh, by the way, Jesus is in the room. The, the power of the Lord Jesus is there. Wouldn't that change the way we make all of our decisions if we always thought of that? Oh, oh Jesus is in the room. Jesus is, is present with us. I imagine if they'd been thinking that way all along, none of this would have happened. They wouldn't have found themselves in this position if, if they'd been from the get-go wondering, what would Jesus think? about the way we're approaching this. And then he says this in verse five. Here's what you should do. You should deliver this man to Satan. Now that sounds like they've got bouncers in the church who grab him and throw him in their trunk and drive him to Satan's house and drop him off on his doorstep in the middle of the night. Deliver this man to Satan. He's hogtied and just laying on Satan's doorstep. Satan opens up in the morning. He's like, oh, here's Teddy. What is he talking about? Deliver this man to Satan. What, is that, what does that mean? What he's saying is this, when, when God's people, when, when the followers of Jesus, when God's family, when, when God's community is living in a healthy way, it's the safest place to be. It, when we're willing to speak into each other's lives and encourage and challenge each other and love each other on a deep level and not be afraid to say, hey, Think about your life. When we're willing to do that, the place that we're in is the very safest place we can be. That, we don't get that kind of thing outside of the church. Sometimes we don't get that kind of thing inside the church, but we certainly don't get it outside where we might call the world. In fact, what we'll find out there are people who want us to continue in our wayward ways. They want us to continue in the, in the ways of destruction that will eventually lead us to doom. And Paul says, if, if we help this guy see that what he has in the church is precious, he might wake up. Have you ever gotten up in the morning and you were running late and you didn't have time to shower, brush your teeth. You only had time to jump up out of bed, get in the car just so you could get to work on time. Been there. And then you find yourself all of a sudden in the parking lot and you realize, I have no idea how I got to this place. Because you, am I the only one this has ever happened to? Because you've been asleep the whole time while driving. What would happen if someone pulled out in front of you? What would happen? And so, sometimes we just coast along by muscle memory and we need something jarring to wake us up. We, we need something to happen that will catch our attention. And Paul's saying, this will catch this guy's attention. I can tell you this, if I were kicked out of the church tomorrow for a character defect, don't judge me. But if I were kicked out of the church tomorrow for that, I would straighten up right away. 
I got nowhere else to go. You, you guys are my people. I have no other people. No one else loves me. And so I have nowhere else to go. And so if that were to happen to me, I'd straighten up right away. And because Paul knows and loves this man, he understands the same thing will be true for him. He'll straighten up if we get him into this place. And here's the goal. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit will be saved. That's the goal. Paul says, this may sound drastic, but I know him, and this is the only thing that's going to help him see the truth. Verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? And I'm not smart enough to describe exactly how leaven or yeast works when it gets into bread, but just know this, it changes the nature of dough when yeast is placed inside. So when these tiny bacteria who, who get into your bread and eat sugar and begin to pass gas in your bread and they make it bigger because they passed gas in it, and then we call it food, that becomes bread. All throughout the Bible, we get this picture of bread, how God speaks to his people as though they're a loaf of bread. And we first get this example of, of God using this metaphor for his people in the story of the Exodus from Egypt. So if you've ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, or The Prince of Egypt, or if you've heard the story of Moses and Pharaoh and how he led the children of Israel, Moses led them out of Egypt, what you learn is that on the night Moses led them out of Egypt, they were to celebrate this event by taking a lamb and sacrificing it. They take the blood of this lamb and paint it on the doorposts of their house. And then they would eat the lamb together as a family. And they were also required to sweep their house out entirely in case there were any, any leftover little particles of yeast that had somehow fallen off of a crumb of bread. And they were to bake bread in their oven without any yeast or any leaven in it at all. God desired that they would bake unleavened bread that night. And the purpose of that was this, so that they would see that God was about to rescue them very quickly, so quickly that they wouldn't have time for their bread to rise. And so all throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see God over and over again using this picture of, of bread without leaven, without yeast in it, to, to describe his people in a place of purity without sinfulness without outside influences, without corruption, without idolatry, over and over and over again. He says this, and many times when he's talking about bread, he, he often tells them that, that, guys, you've got a lot of leaven in your dough. You, you've got a lot of corrupting influences, and what you've found is that you're no longer the people I created you to be. Something completely different. This is what Paul is saying here. He to the church in Corinth, they're no longer the people that Jesus has made them to be. They're, they're something completely different. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump because you really are unleavened. Not, not only when Jesus died for us did he, did he wash away our sins. Not only does he give us forgiveness, but he actually gives us a brand new identity. He says, you really are unleavened. You're behaving in a way as though, as though you've got a lot of sin in your lives, but because of what Christ has done for us, he's actually removed it from us. He put it to death. And somewhere along the line, we forgot about that. He says, you really are unleavened because Christ 
our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. They called this festival with the unleavened bread where they, where they were led out of Egypt to Passover because that night an angel passed over the land of Egypt and every home that had blood on the doorpost, he did not bring God's judgment to that house. And so what we see now in Jesus is that when we place our faith in him and, and his, his death has forgiven us of our sins, God completely passes us over in judgment so that we do not have to have anything standing between us and God. Paul says, I want to I wanna redirect us back to this moment, this moment when Christ truly set us free. So he says, instead of celebrating this man's sin, celebrate this festival, celebrate this Passover, celebrate what God has done, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And I'm not talking about the sexually immoral people of this world or greedy people or swindlers or idolaters, because then you would have to go out of the world. He says, I'm not even talking about people who aren't Christians. I'm not talking about people who don't follow Jesus. See, what we like to do is, is we like to think of the things that are, that are sinful, and we like to look outside the church and point our fingers at people outside the church and say, you need to get your act together, and you need to stop living this way. We can't place that expectation upon them because they haven't been made new by Jesus. They don't, they don't understand. They don't know. Paul says, here's what we need to do. We need to look within first. We have to examine ourselves First, we have to look within. He says, now I'm writing you to you in verse 11 to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of these things. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, he says, don't even eat with someone like that. The more I thought about this this week, the more I realized that if we, if we took this to heart, Every one of us would be eating alone all the time. Which one of us are perfect enough to say, we can prepare a table for people to come and sit with us and, and live in perfection with us? Which one of us can say that, that, we've, that we've removed all of the sin in our lives? Which one of us can say that we consistently think kind thoughts? Which one of us can say that we consistently think pure thoughts? Which one of us has reached Perfection. What's Paul trying to say here? Is he trying to say if, if, if people aren't perfect, don't let them in the church? It's not what he's trying to say at all. What he's trying to say is this. If, if we've come to a place where we've so forgotten who Christ has made us to be, it will take something as drastic as him shaking us awake. And for them, it was going to be stop associating with each other. This moment where he says, don't even eat with them. I'm reminded of, of Jesus's last Passover meal. Where he's sitting down, he's celebrating this feast with, with his closest friends. And we call them the 12 disciples. Some of them were extortioners. Some of them were revolutionaries who'd probably taken part in assassination attempts on government officials. One of the men at this table with Jesus was a man named Judas who, if you're familiar with his story, betrayed him that very night. Jesus is eating at a table with these sinful people. And if we look at Jesus's life, he was consistently over and over and over again, 
eating with sinners, the Bible says. And everybody was mad at him about that. Jesus, why would you associate with people who are sinful? Why would you do this? And he really shows us why he could do this while he's having this Passover with his closest friends. He, he, he takes this loaf of unleavened bread that they used to celebrate and he begins to break it into pieces. He starts to pass it around the table, sharing it with them. And he says, in the past, this loaf of bread represented to us the fact that we were rescued out of Egypt. And we remember this wonderful thing that God did in the history of our nation. He says, but I want you to understand this. No longer does it represent the rescue out of Egypt. Now it represents my body that's soon to be broken on a cross that will for every one of us rescue us from sin. Right after that, he took this bottle of wine and he poured it into a cup and he passed it around and they all began to sip from that cup. And he said, in the past, this cup of wine represented the blood of the lamb that reminded us that God passed over our people in judgment and he chose not to judge them because they'd sacrificed a lamb. He says, from now on, this wine is going to represent my blood that shows us that God will pass over every one of us in judgment if we place our faith in Jesus. He changes the meaning of this festival. He changes the meaning of this feast and helps them remember and realize that no longer do they have to be bound to their sinful desires. No longer do we have to be trapped in the behaviors that, that make us feel ashamed and broken and that, and that make us wonder if God really loves us or wants us, that fill us with guilt. No longer do we have to be weighed down by those things because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And Paul says this, let us therefore celebrate this fact. And we, we do something like this. We celebrate that every month here at Renaissance on, on the day we call Communion Sunday. And what we do, instead of, instead of taking bread and wine, we, we take crackers and juice because they're cheaper than bread and wine, quite frankly. And, and we pass them around and, and we, we eat the cracker and that represents to us the body of Jesus that's being broken for our sin. It, it represents to us that he's taken all of our brokenness into himself and he put it to death on the cross. And then we take a little cup of juice and we drink it. And as it washes down our throat, we're reminded that his blood washes all of our sins away. In just a few moments, some friends of mine are gonna come and they're gonna begin passing crackers and juice to you. And when they do, I want you to know that if you're here and you believe in Jesus, you're welcome to take communion with us. You're welcome to participate in this. And when the cracker comes your way and the juice comes your way, when you feel ready as the band is playing and worshiping, you go ahead and remember what Jesus has done by eating that cracker and thanking him for his body that was, that was broken for our brokenness. And then drink the juice, and as it, as it helps to wash the cracker down your throat, remember that, that all of the damage that our brokenness has caused, everything that, that we've done that is, that is hurtful and harmful, that has caused issues in other people's lives and in our own lives, Jesus can forgive us of every one of those things. And then after that, I'm going to ask you that you would stand and begin to sing with the band and, and celebrate and worship and thank God for what he's done. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so, so thankful 
that you sent your son Jesus to rescue us from our sin. We're so thankful that he willingly gave his life for us. We're so thankful for this reminder that, that you, your desire is never to kick any one of us out of your family, but you want every one of us to wake up. You want every one of us to see the truth. So Lord, I, I pray this. I pray that whatever it takes for those of us in the room to see the truth of who you are, I pray you'd show us that tonight. Whatever it takes. And then, Lord, I pray that you would redirect us into your loving arms. As we take communion tonight and remember what you've done, I pray for people who feel ashamed over their sin, that they would be set free from that. I pray for anyone in the room who is trapped in sin, that they would be set free from that. I pray for anyone in the room who's overwhelmed with guilt or overwhelmed with sorrow at the sinful behavior of another. Lord, I pray that you would come and heal those things through what you've done. As we celebrate what you did and thank you for what you did, Jesus, I pray that we would see, we would see the fruit of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together, we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, please go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves him.